0: On the two counts of first-degree murder, I find you, Travis Edward Vader, not guilty. But Travis Edward Vader, I do find you guilty of the lesser and included offence of second-degree murder of Lyle and Marie McCann near Piers, Alberta, on or about July 3, 2010. episode 47. My name is Michael Spratt.
1: Hi, this is Emily Tamman.
0: Hi, Emily Tamman. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm excited to be recording another podcast again.
0: I know. It's been a long time.
1: It has been a little while. We've had a lot going on. But I feel like every time we do our opening, we say, we've had a lot going on, but we just always kind of do.
0: It's true. It's like back to school. We've got some house-related stuff that we're doing. You started a new job.
1: I started my new job, teaching. Hi, students. I know you're all listening. You better be.
0: Um, Yeah, so it's been busy.
1: Yeah, it's been busy, but it's been good. And, you know, segue from teaching to the theme of the podcast tonight. Um, I was just uh, lecturing uh, to my students on Thursday, I guess it was, about a couple of different things, uh, one of which was a case that we were looking at um, in the context of statutory interpretation, but which went to a sort of pathway of conviction to murder issue. Um, And we were also talking about, sort of in a related context, the difficulty with the fact that um, provisions of the criminal code that have been found unconstitutional are still in the code. So this was just kind of a discussion that we were having, just sort of naturally, because in the early couple of classes of first year criminal law, one talks about sources of law and uh, the intersection between statutory law and common law and the constitution... And lo and behold, the next day, <laughs> in the real world, a bombshell dropped, which put everything that I had been talking about into a very particular context.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it was good timing, right? So today, eventually, when we get to it, we're going to talk about um, the sensational and shocking uh, Travis Vader case, which was a, a double murder case in Alberta. Um, and there's a few things that are interesting uh, about that. But before I do that, let me ask you this. How is it being a professor?
1: <laughs> I really like it so far. I'm really enjoying it. I loved taking criminal law myself as a first year law student, so it's really fun to be digging back into the first principles and kind of. Um, it's very eye opening to me to see what it is that students find challenging in the beginning, because you do forget when you've been a practitioner or an academic for a number of years um, how genuinely challenging a lot of the concepts are in the beginning of, of law school and. Um, you know my mom sort of put it to me like you know it's like learning a language and it's frustrating for students because in the beginning you're basically just teaching them words the equivalent um, of words and it's it's hard to connect all the dots early on and I think that's challenging for students and so the the challenge from my perspective is finding kind of bite-sized chunks uh, to discuss in a given day in a way that is manageable and hope that at some point in the future, um, it all comes together. But anyway, I'm really enjoying it and the students seem keen. And so it's been fun so far.
0: They better be keen. It's like the first week of school. If they're not keen now, there's a big problem.
1: Yeah. But I mean, not just keen about school, but keen in particular about criminal law. So, you know, it's not everybody's cup of tea. I think most first year law students find criminal law relatively interesting to learn, but, um, it's, uh, It's neat because I am teaching two sections, and in my small group in particular, there appear to be a number of students who come to law school with a pre-existing interest in criminal law, so uh, that makes it fun.
0: Yeah, so the other thing that we're not talking about today is the Brendan Dassey decision, which we say at the beginning of every podcast that we're going to do it, and we've read the decision, and we're eager to talk about it, but then this Vader case sort of blew up.
1: It's an appropriate name for a bad guy, isn't it? Vader.
0: I guess he's a convicted bad guy now. I was about to say, (laughs) alleged bad guy. Alleged
1: bad guy. But he
0: hasn't been... um, The decision hasn't been overturned yet.
1: No, not yet. But we will get to that. This was too timely and topical, um, I think, for us not to talk about uh, on tonight's episode of the docket. Um, Just for me, it was so top of mind because I had been talking about these particular issues the day before, like I said, but also... I think it's, this is the type of case I really like to talk about on the podcast because it's being talked about a lot in the public domain, but the complexities of actually what went wrong, I think are worth kind of teasing out a little bit. Um, it happens that in this case, a lot of prominent academics, uh, some of whom have been on this podcast before, I'm talking to you, Peter Sankoff. All
0: right, we have, he's told <laughs> but, us we have to call him uh, a good friend of
1: the podcast, yes, our Peter friend, Sankoff. friend, our friend and friend of the podcast, Peter Sankoff. But so... There are a number of people who are out there in the media doing a really excellent job of explaining this to people. So I I don't want to be taken to suggest for a minute that um, that this is a case where it's being botched somehow. But I think, you know, just to take the time to have a slightly longer discussion about what happened, what went wrong, what it might mean. And um, in a kind of bizarre convergence of situations, this is also a case where. Um, in a very exceptional situation the verdict was broadcast live on television which almost never happens in Canada I mean it's I've never seen it myself so um We're going to talk about the the consequences of that and and what that might mean for the opening of the courts in that way going forward.
0: Yeah, there's been a a pretty good debate going on in sort of the the media and and sort of legal world about this whole issue of having cameras in the courtroom and, you know, when and if we should broadcast what happens inside the courtroom, which is, you know, something that that I wrote about and I have an op-ed coming out uh, about that. It's something that I'm sort of pretty conflicted about because I like to watch these cases Um, like you know I'd like to see them as they unfold and not just read about them after or read transcripts and so on a personal level I'd love to have cameras in the courtroom but on um, sort of a professional level it's something that I find sort of troubling and a bit conflicting so um, we can uh, talk about that a little bit as well, some of the pros and cons, and what people are saying about when we should broadcast and if we should broadcast. And and I think because of how this case unfolded, um, they dovetail pretty well together.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. So those are the two things we're going to be talking about today: the Vader verdict, what went wrong, and cameras in the courtroom.
0: All right, let's get to it. travis vader accused of double first-degree murder maybe you can break it down a bit just before we dive into the legal stuff emily about you know and i I don't think we'll get into like the nitty-gritty because i think there is a deep dive you can take and what i'll do is i'll i'll post uh the the judgment um that lays out all the facts and the legal tests and things but i mean there's like dna evidence there's cell phone evidence there's witness evidence there's unsavory evidence from you know people with criminal records and you know the the court takes a skeptical view of their evidence there's lots of issues there you can do a total deep dive making a murderer dissection of this thing but um, maybe you can fly us over at like 50,000 feet
1: yeah you could also probably teach a law school criminal law course off the backs of just this case because it has so many different issues in it um Our listeners outside of Alberta may be less familiar with this case. I think within Alberta, this is a case that has garnered an enormous amount of public attention. I personally, you know, being here in Ontario, I definitely recall some time ago the story of this um, retired couple who were going off RVing and... Um, They were to meet their daughter at the, um, I think it was the Abbotsford airport and um, they didn't show up when she, when her plane arrived, her parents weren't there. And right away that was red flags. She said that was very much unlike them. Uh, She called the RCMP and um, it wasn't long before uh, their RV was located, charred and burned. Um, I think apparently uh, quite likely a crime scene of some kind.
0: Yeah, and they were missing. I mean, this is Lyle and uh, Marie McCann, who sound, from everything that I've heard, like the cutest old couple ever. I mean, they're both in their late 70s. Lyle was a retired, like, long-haul trucker. They had bought this RV and they sort of driven it around. And I think they had been married or or together since they were in their late teens. So, I mean, it's a pretty tragic circumstance. But, um, I mean, I think that's sort of initially what sort of grab the public's attention like the disappearance of this old couple with no explanation and just their burnt out rv
1: that's right and this was back in july of 2010 so 2010 they go missing um the the rv was located but it was sometime and in fact um the the mccann's bodies have never been found to this day which is a really interesting kind of twist in the case because leaving aside the legal errors that, that unfolded, this would have been you know, very much a circumstantial case. Um, but what, what's interesting is that um, Travis Vader came onto the radar as a potential suspect relatively early on for a number of different reasons that we don't necessarily get into, but including the fact that he was seen driving the McCann's SUV, which they had been towing uh, behind their RV uh, not long after they went missing. Um, But what's really interesting, I think, because of the fact that they didn't have the bodies and because this was a circumstantial case, it took a long time before um, they they were ready to actually mount a prosecution against Vader.
0: Yeah, it turns out in the early days, the police actually towed sort of the burnt out hulk of this uh, RV to, you know, the dump or something and tried to go notify uh, the McCanns that their R V was missing. So already at this early stage you have, you know, the crime scene's not intact, things have been moved around Um, and so you know that can inject a bit of uncertainty into a prosecution especially a prosecution that you know you have a a suspect who uh, the case against him is entirely circumstantial and you don't have bodies or a murder weapon and those are usually things that you do have although things that you don't need
1: no that's right meanwhile um, Travis Vader uh, is uh, a um, as I understand it a meth addict Mm -hmm. a petty criminal but kind of like ramping up and in fact in the course of the time since the McCanns went missing and up until the trial, um, actually committed and was convicted of a number of criminal offences, um, I think some of which were relatively serious, including um, some drug trafficking charges and uh, some, I think, other kind of robberies and thefts and that kind of thing that were taking place uh, in in Alberta.
0: Yeah, it's a bizarre and messy sort of background that he has. This is um, clearly someone who... Uh, has major issues and has been involved in the criminal justice system before. And I think some of those intervening convictions actually got overturned and appealed and he was acquitted on. And he so, sued the
1: Crown. Like it, it, it's,
0: it's messy.
1: messy. Let's <laughs> just say it's messy. Um, and I think one particular procedural point that's relevant, though, is that at one point, I don't have the dates in front of me, but he was actually arrested and charged um, with the McCann murder. And... Detained in custody, leading up to the trial, and basically at the eleventh hour before the trial was set to begin, uh, the crown turned around and stayed the charges. Most likely because they felt they didn't have enough evidence to secure a conviction at that time, but and they were ready to let him go.
0: And there was disclosure issues. There was you know new material that was disclosed at the eleventh hour to the defense, which you know is problematic in and of itself. Um, but yeah, the charges get stayed and they don't get reactivated. The crown relays the charges, but not till nine months later.
1: Yeah. And this is relevant because when we start talking about what went wrong, uh, when the trial finally, um, was undertaken and, and he was convicted last week, um, It's relevant because when we when we look at and think about next steps and what can be done to fix this mistake, it is relevant that you have to look at this case through the lens of there's already been a lot of delay, not just in terms of justice for the victims families with, you know, the McCann's having gone missing back in 2010. But from the perspective of the accused, um, the back and forth, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, he brought an abuse of process application against the prosecution. Um, in this case, because of the laying of the charge, then the stay, then the relaying of the charge and the disclosure issue, so it's I mean, yeah, like we said, it's messy yeah,
0: he also I mean launched like a million dollar lawsuit against the RCMP and you know various other justice system actors so um, yeah it's it's really messy, but maybe you can tell us how. When you have no body, you have no murder weapon, you have no eyewitnesses, and you just have sort of Travis Vader with his disreputable character, Uh, what's the evidence against him?
1: Yeah, so this is, um, you know, when you have a circumstantial case, I think... um It's the totality of the evidence that the court has to look at to determine whether um, there's a sufficient evidentiary basis for the judge to be um, satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that they have the right guy. And so um, I alluded before to the fact that uh, uh, apparently within a couple of hours of the last time that the McCann's daughter spoke to them, uh, Travis Vader was seen driving their SUV. So that um, was one piece of the puzzle that... They were alive, and not long after they were last known to be alive, this person has their vehicle. Uh, Forensic analysis of the burnt-out RV uh, uh, uncovered not only, obviously, the McCann's DNA, but the accused, uh, Travis Vader's DNA, Uh, Not just his DNA in the RV, but from what I understood from the um, summaries of the evidence that his his DNA was in some cases commingled with the DNA of um, the victims, which is you know you have to be really careful like just because his dna is found in the rv is not particularly compelling evidence that he killed them i mean it's evidence of that that his dna was in the rv which means he was in the rv at some point in time um when you start to have um, evidence of a commingling of his dna with one of the victims dna that suggests a more significant um, interaction between the two um, and for them to be exchanging dna in that way uh, certainly is another piece of circumstantial evidence that suggests a possible violent confrontation
0: yeah there's blood uh, found in in the SUV, uh, and I think uh, you quite rightly point out that you know maybe the most damning piece of circumstantial evidence was there was a hat that uh, Mr. McCann had been seen wearing in a, some security um, footage from when they did the sort of their last grocery shop. And on that hat, there was a bullet hole, or what was found to be a bullet hole, and around that bullet hole, there was a commingling um, on, of a blood stain um, that contained both Mr. McCann's and uh, Mr. Vader's DNA. So, I think that not only you know can you view that circumstantial evidence as putting Vader and the McCanns, uh, you know, together. But you can also use that to infer that, you know, the McCann's didn't just, you know, burn their RV and go on some spur of the moment trip and not tell their family, but they met some sort of violent end and Vader was there, which isn't very good for him.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, like we said from the outset, we're not getting into all the details of the evidence, but it's clear that there was evidence that there was contact between these people likely some kind of theft or robbery that had taken place.
0: Well, they do find the McCann's uh, phone in, in oh, a yeah, dumpster okay. and there's text sent from that phone um, signed by someone named T. I'm just guessing, maybe that could be Travis Vader, um, to Vader's ex-girlfriend who had no contact prior with McCann. So you'd have some of their property that you know, that McCann has or that Vader has obviously interacted with and sent text on. And they also found um, a key to the SUV in a truck that Vader was driving subsequently. So, I mean, with each piece of circumstantial evidence, I mean, it seems more and more likely that, you know, Vader met the McCann's, that something violent happened potentially with a gun and that somehow that resulted in the McCann's death.
1: The defense argued that there wasn't even sufficient, sufficient evidence that they were even dead to justify a prosecution. Um, that's
0: a poor argument.
1: Yeah, that's that's not a compelling argument. I mean, first of all, these are people who were not known to just take off for six years at a time without contacting their family. Um, I think within about a year of their disappearance, they were legally declared dead by a court for uh, purposes of administration of estates and, and, and the like, but... Um, I think uh, I certainly would be very comfortable if I was a reviewing court with the, you know, a finding that, yes, in fact, these people died and that they came to a violent end. That seems consistent, sufficiently consistent with the evidence that we've seen.
0: And I think you can say they came to a violent end in which Vader was somehow involved. And I think that's where we get into some of the legal problems that arose during this televised verdict. It's uh, a large step from, you know, someone simply dying through a, through a confrontation or otherwise with, with an accused to that being classified as murder.
1: Right. And actually, I have a quote here from the judge where he says, While I cannot reconstruct the exact detail of what occurred, I have no doubt about the overarching relevant fact. The McCann's were victim of violence. Mr. Vader inflicted the violence. So this is kind of the, this is the key factual finding um, leading to the conviction, but still leaves open the question of what exactly it is that Mr. Vader um, is going to be convicted of.
0: Yeah. And in this like 160 something page judgment, I mean, the stuff that we've just talked about now comprises you know the first 160 pages of the judgment and really there doesn't seem to be I mean we weren't there so I don't know about factual issues but we
1: didn't watch it live on television (laughs) because we didn't need to be there in this case
0: but I mean up into this point assuming that these facts are correct and and reasonable and Mm -hmm. from everything I've heard they have been um there doesn't really seem to be anything wrong with what the court's done up until this point
1: that's right. So do you want to maybe set out what the different avenues are to conviction for murder?
0: So, yeah. So let's briefly set out what those avenues are. And then we'll play a clip from Global News that has the judge reading out sort of a part of the decision that's caused some controversy. And then uh, law professor Steve Penny giving some commentary on it. But, I mean, the avenues to murder... Um, It's actually pretty simple. It gets complicated when you start doing the classifications. But murder is an intentional killing where the accused uh, is responsible, causes the death, and does so um, knowing with the subjective knowledge that death is the likely result of his actions. Um, I mean, some examples are really easy. If I, you know, shoot you in the chest um, and I say, you know, die... (laughs) That's pretty good evidence based on, you know, that a person intends the natural consequences of their action. When you shoot someone in the te- in the chest, you can infer that they intended them to-, to die. Certainly if the accused says something like, die or I'm going to kill you now, that's also very good uh, evidence about their subjective intent. But we don't always have that. Um, sometimes there's, you know, violence that might be, you know, less likely to lead to the conclusion that the, the accused intended the person to die. And I think that sort of the easiest way to differentiate that, um, is a, an example that shows the difference between a manslaughter where you cause someone to die, um, but you don't intend for them to die, or it's not subjectively, you know, likely that, that they would die, um and and the sort of the second degree murder where you intentionally inflict wounds that are likely to cause them to die and you know that the, the, that your action is likely to do that. So if I walk out of a bar and I get in a fight, as I often do. <laughs> as you do, as I because do, you're a bruiser. And, you know, I punch somebody and they fall down and they hit their head on the sidewalk and die. That's not murder. Um, I've caused their death, uh, but, and and... And I have intentionally caused bodily harm to them, but the result of them falling down and dying, although it's caused by me, I didn't have the subjective intent that that I wanted to cause them to die. Um, I may have wanted to inflict bodily harm, but, you know, the intervening act of them falling down um, and hitting their head isn't something that I, you know, subjectively could have expected. And I didn't subjectively know that it was likely that that, that they would die. And so that's not a murder, that's a manslaughter because the courts have, and our laws are really clear that when you're dealing with murder, it's you know, one of the most heinous and awful crimes. It carries with it a tremendous stigma. And for a crime, especially a crime like that, um, when the stigma is so high and the punishment is so severe that you have to you know, intend you know, the consequences of your actions, right? You have to uh, know that it's likely that you're going to kill the person and actually want to kill the person.
1: That's right. And so manslaughter covers a really broad range of conduct and as a result is not subject to the same mandatory minimum life sentence as a murder conviction carries. Um, And depending on, you know, essentially the moral blameworthiness of the accused, the sentence can range from something very trivial to something almost equivalent to a life sentence.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, And then after you've established that, that, you know, um, a person is guilty of murder, that there is that extra mental element that they intended to cause the person's death or inflict harm that was likely to cause their death. Because um, you don't need to shoot someone in the head or the chest. Like, I can shoot you in the leg, and if you bleed out and die, I mean, that's still enough to convict someone of second-degree murder because when you shoot someone in the leg and you discharge a gun um, at, at them, you know you can say that it's you know likely that the person is going to die. Right. Um, but once you get to that second degree murder stage, then it's really a matter of classification. If you've planned and deliberated on the murder, thought about it and, and set out with a plan uh, to commit murder, then, you know, the degree murder can be elevated to a first degree murder, which has, you know, different parole eligibility periods, both have a life sentence. So you're, you're, you know, both sentenced for life. But with second-degree murder, you can be eligible for parole. You may not get parole. You probably don't get parole. But you can be eligible for parole between 10 and 25 years. At first-degree murder, um, you know, you're eligible for parole or you're ineligible for parole until you've reached that 25-year mark. So if you've planned and deliberated a murder, then that can elevate it to first-degree murder. And there's other sections in the code that if you've you know forcibly confined someone or, or um, you've killed someone in the course of a sexual assault... Um, or kidnapping, or terrorism offense. That you know that can also elevate uh, what would be a second degree murder to a first degree murder, absent sort of that extra planning and deliberation.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important to underscore for the purposes of this discussion. So, section two thirty one of the criminal code essentially deems certain otherwise intentional murders um that would otherwise be second degree murders it deems them to be first degree murders if the killing um like you said takes place while committing another offense um and it's a certain class of offenses that are you know particularly serious or for whatever reason parliament in its wisdom decided that if you commit a murder while committing one of the designated offenses it's a first degree murder so that's section 231 section 230 which precedes section 231 in the criminal code, kind of notches it back and says, if you commit a manslaughter while committing certain designated offenses, that becomes a murder.
0: Yeah, so I mean, it's a section that says, look, if you're robbing someone, if you're sexually assaulting someone and you inflict bodily harm, Even if you don't mean to kill the person, if they die, it would normally be a manslaughter. But in those circumstances, even though you don't have that, you know, subjective mental element that you intend to kill the person, it's still because of the circumstances, the the robbery, the sexual assault, the forcible confinement, it's still going to be second degree murder. Now, there's obviously a bit of a problem there because we've just talked about how murder, the punishment is is severe, the stigma is very high, it's the most serious offense, you need to have that mental element that you intend to to kill the person. Section 230, you don't need to have you don't need to have that, that elevated mental state.
1: That's right, and that's important because I think on its face, section, or on their faces, if I could put it that way, sections 230 and 231 seem very similar. 231 takes a second-degree murder and makes it a first-degree murder. 230 takes a manslaughter and makes it a murder. But actually, the leap from manslaughter to murder is a much bigger leap than the leap from second-degree murder to first-degree murder.
0: And so in the Vader case, there's obviously a lot of ambiguity about what happened. The court can't tell the circumstances that The McCanns, you know, uh, were killed in. They can't tell exactly what Vader was thinking. They can't tell if it was a robbery gone wrong, if there was some sort of accident. They can't say anything that would necessarily give the court proof beyond a reasonable doubt about the circumstances of the murder and therefore what Vader's, you know, intentions and and his subjective intentions with respect to committing murder or not committing murder were.
1: That's right, which... I think it makes it very difficult in this kind of a circumstantial case to establish second-degree murder as opposed to manslaughter. Now, if, for example... Uh, in the course of their investigation, the RCMP had, say, searched Travis Fader's computer and found a series of emails between him and a third party where he's saying, you know, I want to get an SUV and I'm going to find, you know, I'm going to go find some people on a campground and if, I'll kill them if I have to, you know, something like that. There, it's it's not impossible to have a circumstantial case that rises to a first degree murder. Um, or a second
0: degree murder, event, Or a
1: second degree murder where there's some evidence that the accused has some particular intention and uh, to convict someone of murder, uh, there's a very particular... Intent that has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt
0: So That's how The court in Alberta Found Mr. Vader not guilty of first degree murder Because they said you know we don't know if he planned And deliberated what he did And we don't know if there was that You know that section 231 That extra element That would increase a second degree murder To a first degree murder But what we do know is that there was a robbery And what we do know Is that there was bodily harm And so, therefore, under Section 230, even though we can't say beyond a reasonable doubt what his subjective intent was, he's still guilty of murder.
1: That's right. I mean, I think the judge had to even take it one step farther and say there was a robbery and that he was satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Travis Vader caused their death. Um, but what he doesn't know is did he cause their death in the course of some kind of a struggle did he cause their death was it an accident that happened in the course of the robbery versus you know was it an intentional killing and so the judge relied on section 230 of the criminal code to find that you know while i don't have proof beyond a reasonable doubt as to his mental state i'm satisfied that there was a uh, that there was a robbery and i'm satisfied that vader caused their death and therefore i'm going to find you guilty of second degree murder
0: now let's play a clip from, um, from Global News that uh, has a clip of the judge reading out this section of his decision and then uh, an analysis by uh, law professor Stephen Penny uh, about um, what could potentially be wrong with using that section. In this high profile, highly anticipated ruling, this one line is where legal scholars say Justice Denny Thomas went wrong. A homicide is murder, section 230 of the criminal code if Mr. Vader killed the McCanns, one, during commission of a robbery. But that's just not true, says U of A law professor Stephen Penny. It's a very
2: big mistake that will be a, um, a successful ground of appeal.
0: Penny says for a killing to be murder, the Crown must prove the accused knew his actions could lead to the victim's death. With Vader, we know little about his actions. But a section of the criminal code says the court doesn't need that proof if the killing happens during a robbery. And that's how Justice Thomas settled on second-degree murder. However, 26 years ago, the Supreme Court of Canada declared that section unconstitutional. Criminal lawyers and judges have known for a generation or more that this provision, even though it's still printed in the criminal code, is of no force or effect. So section 230 isn't actually the law because it's unconstitutional. And for the last 26 years, it's been of no force and effect and has had no application in Canada.
1: Awkward,
0: pretty awkward. Um, section two hundred and thirty has undergone a bunch of different judicial considerations um, in uh, in the late eighties in the case of Valancourt, um, Section two hundred and thirty sub d, and we won't get into the different uh, different sort of um, sort of legal aspects of each of these sections. But part of section two hundred and thirty was found to be unconstitutional. And uh, Parliament actually repealed that section. So when you look in the criminal code under Section 230D, that specific section says repealed. In 1990, um, the Supreme Court, in a case called Martineau, found that all of Section 230 was unconstitutional because it didn't take into account sort of the subjective, the extra subjective element that you actually need to get to murder. It would allow people to be convicted of murder. Even though they never intended to commit murder, and and they didn't, you know, have that that extra special subjective or objective really um, uh, element. That's
1: and, right. I mean, essentially, the court found that it's unconstitutional to convict someone of murder when you don't have the requisite mens rea. So there's a constitutional minimum mental element and elevating a manslaughter to a second degree murder without that evidence violates the Charter and as a consequence Section 230 is unconstitutional. Now one thing that I find very interesting when I went back to look at Viancourt and Martineau and Section 230 of the Criminal Code is that actually at the time that Martineau and Viancourt were decided Section 230 was actually Section 213 of the Criminal Code. So from time to time, there's a renumbering to clean things up if provisions have been repealed or whatever. But it's interesting to me because of the fact that it demonstrates that there has been some housekeeping that has taken place within the criminal code since those cases were decided. So after after Viancourt, uh, what was then 213 sub D, which we're referring to as 230 sub D, just because of the renumbering, was repealed. But why? I just have to ask myself: Did Parliament not see fit to repeal the balance of the provision, and why did it even get ever get renumbered at all?
0: It's it's not so, and
1: that's the end. Oh, there. Then, okay, okay. I'm just gonna make it. It's not the reason is it's, because it's, it's not, not so. so.
0: It is not um, so. Well, the real reason may be that our parliamentarians are spineless and weak-willed and are unwilling to dive into complex issues for political reasons, but perhaps not.
1: Well, I mean, I I think that in the context for sure of, for example, the criminal prohibition against procuring an abortion, I mean, that prohibition is still in the criminal code. It's long been found to be unconstitutional. It is not an enforceable provision of the code. I understand why it's a bit of a political hot potato and why uh, you know governments might prefer simply not to touch it because they likely feel that they can have confidence that people won't be prosecuted for that because right-minded prosecutors and judges and police officers will know that it's not an offense anymore. But a provision like um, section 230, I, I don't see it as being as much of a hot potato. I mean, I guess no one wants to stand up in the House of Commons and say it's not going to be a murder anymore if you shoot someone in the course of a robbery. You
0: only say that because you're soft on crime.
1: <laughs> I am soft on crime.
0: And you don't care about the children.
1: I, I'm i yeah. with the pornographers.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're either with, with us, with us with or, with the the government, or with the child pornographers, as Vic Taves said. Um, but let's do this. So, I mean, like, that's the Vader decision. It's... I think it's too much to talk about. I'm going to link to uh, to a copy of The Decision. Uh, we'll link to some articles about it so you can take a deep dive in. But what I want to do is let's play a, a discussion between uh, a friend of the podcast, Peter Sankoff, and the CBC um, because he'll sort of reiterate and reinforce what we've just said. But then he sort of talks about cleaning up our legislation and the blame that that needs to fall on the government shoulders for this mess and other messes and he also talks a little bit about how it was broadcast and how he saw it and I think then that can lead us into a conversation about cameras in the courtroom and you know what we should do to clean up the criminal code
1: yeah and just super quickly before you play that clip I just want to highlight one thing for people who may not know Most lawyers work from annotated versions of the criminal code, and so um, practitioners who are actually dealing with these issues on a day-to-day basis, and that would include judges, should typically, um, when dealing with a provision that's been found unconstitutional, be able to see that relatively quickly with any kind of visual reference to the annotation. So it's, it's... I mean, I can see how people make mistakes when it comes to provisions that have been found un- unconstitutional, but it really does kind of increase the, it's a head scratcherness of this situation to think of how, um, how the trial judge uh, here could have made this mistake.
0: Well, you teach your first-year law students this. This is a very basic thing. And I mean, just quickly, I guess, before we play the clip, the most bizarre thing here is that the, the lawyers for Alberta, the Crown Attorney, and Defense Counsel did not make submissions on section 230 of the criminal code. And it was never raised in submissions. It was never raised any anytime before it came out of the judge's mouth at the end of his decision.
1: And that's important because it's pretty uncommon for a judge to make a final ruling on the basis of a provision or a principle that he's never even given the parties an opportunity to make submissions on. So that's not to say that it's that the Crown or the defense can be faulted in any way because they would not have even been aware that the judge was contemplating convicting Mr. Vader on the basis of Section 230. And I have very little doubt that had the judge signaled that in any way, the parties would have recognized it and, and corrected things uh, very, very quickly.
0: Yeah. I mean, which is doubly awkward in this case because it seems like the judge was going out of his way to convict him of second-degree murder Perhaps because of the publicity, or the cost, or you know the the sensational nature of the case, um, and then you know the judge sort of doubles down before he does it by then allowing this unusual step to broadcast it. So it's like he wanted to convict him of second degree murder. He wanted everyone to see him convict him of second degree murder, and then he did it in a completely unconstitutional and illegal way. Um, And
1: out of left field. So let's let's I mean, I I so wish I had been watching it live. And that's why it's amazing to have a colleague and friend, uh, Peter Sankoff, actually having caught it as it was being broadcast, cast live. And his reaction um, is what you're going to hear next.
2: Well, Section 230, to put it in simplest terms, doesn't actually exist. You can find it online, you can look at it in a, a criminal casebook, but it doesn't exist because the Supreme Court struck it down in 1991. So uh, to put this in the simplest terms that I can, you can't convict somebody of a crime that doesn't exist.
0: How did you find, were you watching, live-streamed, or how did, you, how did you notice this?
2: Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I literally, uh found out that it was live streaming late in the day, and I cut in for the last uh, 25 minutes of the verdict. And uh, it was, I think it helped that my ears were fresh because they suddenly just perked up when I heard section 230, because every criminal law professor is aware that that section has just been the cause of uh, great uh, suffering in Canada, and it's been struck down. So when I heard that, I suddenly realized this is going down a very, very uh, troublesome road.
0: So how odd would it be for a justice to make an error like that?
2: I've never seen one quite like this before. Um, There have been problems along these lines, these sections, I I just wanna say, The trial judge made a bad error here and shouldn't be let off the hook for that, but these sections should have been repealed a long time ago. 26 years um, is a long time for these sections to be hanging around on the books. And this is not the first time that courts have run into problems with them. We've never seen something quite this bad, but on occasion, juries have been left with copies of the wrong section, which has the offending language that the Supreme Court said was unconstitutional and has led to new trials. Long, You know, murder trials are very complex, long affairs. The families go through terrible things as this takes place. We need to get this right. And the easiest way to fix this problem from never happening again is to repeal Section 230. It has no force.
0: If only Peter wasn't in Germany right now and we could call him up.
1: It's true. I mean, he did manage to get himself onto national media here in Canada, but...
0: We don't have the resources of the mother corporation, CBC.
1: That's right. But I mean, it it it's just so it was already exciting, I think, to be watching something live like that, and then to catch, and, you know, as Peter points out, he only even tuned in right near the end, so it's, it's total, you know, fate that he even, um, happened to be watching, and he's not the only one, I mean, from what I understand, in the moment, Twitter kind of exploded, I think, in particular, initially, early on among legal academics, and, uh, you know, widening to, uh, others with knowledge of the criminal justice system, um, But, uh, you know, I just can picture Peter there kind of on his own in Germany. (laughs) At least if you're in your office, you can go and talk to a colleague.
0: But, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I think there's two points that that Peter makes beside the uh, bizarre and unconstitutional finding that the court made. Um, The first is that, you know, the judge obviously bears a great deal of responsibility here. Um, he's the one that didn't read the code. He's the one that didn't read the annotations. He's the one that, on his own, you know, found this pathway to murder that has been, you know, that should have been off the books and has been unconstitutional for a generation. Um, but I think governments do bear some responsibility. We've talked a bit about this in a past podcast, and I've written about it about how unwieldy we, unwieldy, and um, how bloated our criminal code is. Not with Uh, with things that shouldn't be crimes to start with, like selling crime comics, which is an offence here in Canada to sell, distribute, buy, or display any comic book that depicts uh, uh, crime, either real or fictional.
1: And when I flagged that to my first-year criminal students on the first day, someone put up their hand and said, what about Batman? And I said, exactly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like Dick Tracy, Tracy. right? Um,
1: Illegal. Everything.
0: So, I mean... And that there's huge constitutional issues there. We need to sort of review the criminal code, consolidate it. We, okay. don't, we don't need theft provisions for theft, theft from a clam bed, theft of cattle. Uh, cattle, I just learned, uh, includes... You know, deer, sheep, pigs, and things that aren't cattle. Um, You know, there's lots of overlapping provisions, and I think there's lots of uh, efficiencies that can be found in the criminal code. But I think more problematically, there's lots of sections in there that the court, like Section 230, have found to be unconstitutional.
1: Yeah. And I mean, one of the reasons we decided to write our criminal laws down in a book and not simply rely on the common law, which is the case in in a number of other jurisdictions, is that we do have a principle in our law that ignorance of the law is no excuse. And, you know, you can't simply say, well, I didn't know something was a crime because we expect... Uh, it's probably not a reasonable expectation, given the language and other things of the criminal code, but that it is possible to know in advance what is and what isn't criminal. And as it turns out, it isn't totally possible because, I mean, now it's over-inclusive rather than under-inclusive. So the criminal code is not going to tell you that something's okay that turns out to be an offence. But there's a lot of stuff in there that it tells you is an offence that isn't an offence. And that's really problematic.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned abortion before. That's still on the books. Um... Anal intercourse, I think it's like called buggery in the criminal code, is still an offense, even though that's been struck down. And I will say, I mean, you said earlier that you know prosecutors and police wouldn't charge someone with procuring or or administering abortions, but I've had many clients charged with buggery offenses, and some of them are only withdrawn like on the morning of the trial. By the crown, so I mean, there is a cost, there is an uncertainty, and there is a certain responsibility. I think that parliamentarians have to actually, you know, not just talk the talk about, you know, reforming the criminal code or being more progressive on crime. We certainly have heard that from from our new liberal government here. They haven't done anything uh, about reforming the criminal code or correcting any problems in the criminal code. And no government <laughs> over the last, you know number of years has really taken a serious look at making sure that everything in the criminal code should actually be there.
1: That's the thing because, you know, there's taking out the provisions that have been declared by the Supreme Court of Canada to be unconstitutional. That's a no-brainer. It's just a matter of repealing those provisions for the most part. There are some Uh, which may be um, unconstitutional only to a certain extent and that may require actual redrafting. I mean, I think an example of that was the prohibition against physician-assisted suicide Um, that, you know, it required, it wasn't simply a matter of just taking it out of the code because the government nonetheless wanted to continue to regulate um, that particular conduct. So, you know, fine they could just repeal it but then there's a vacuum so but in the case of for example 230 of the criminal code there's going to be a vacuum because the court has basically found you can't elevate something to murder without you know the right mental element but but,
0: oh can I just jump mm -hmm. in and because I think it's important that that we stress that this isn't an isolated incident um I mean there's been other murder trials that have you know gone to the court of appeal and resulted in new trials because juries have been left with You know, uh, sections of the criminal code, including Section 230, that don't apply. And so in those cases, I mean, they would give all the murder sections to the jury, the law to the jury, and they would include this section in there as well. And because, you know, we can't interview juries, juries don't give reasons, we don't know how that jury got to the murder verdict, and this resulted in cases having to go back for a retrial. So this isn't the first time. This is only the most recent time that this no, has but, happened.
1: And I think that's where Peter Sankoff was saying, to be fair to Justice Thomas, he's not the first judge to make this mistake in the last 26 years, um, which is you know a very strong signal of the need for a reform. But, but what I was going to go on to say is that then there are offenses which likely are unconstitutional, but which haven't been litigated and likely won't be litigated because charges will never be laid, and I think the possession of a crime comic is a good example of that. I mean, it would be pretty shocking if someone were to be charged, you know, the comic book shop in our neighborhood, for example, with displaying a Batman comic, contrary to the criminal code. I mean, that if that charge would never be laid. If it was, it would be the offense provision would be impugned on constitutional grounds. If it is,
0: give me a call. I'll represent you yeah. pro bono for like a cut of your comics.
1: And then there are offenses which may not be unconstitutional but which may as a matter of policy no longer be desirable um, criminal code offenses. Marijuana.
0: Oh, sorry. What? what? Oh, oh, well, oh what? we're uh, doing something about that? That's
1: not in the criminal code, but yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, I th- what Peter touched on and this is definitely something we've talked on about on the podcast before is the need to bring back the Law Reform Commission. Because what we used to have an arm's length body who was tasked, which was tasked with comprehensively and on an ongoing basis, reviewing the criminal code, measuring it against the development of the common law, you know where the jurisprudence was going, where social trends were going, and actually making recommendations to Parliament about um, ways in which it might want to improve um, our nation's criminal law. And with that vacuum left... Um, when the Law Reform Commission was shut down to save a couple of bucks. It
0: wasn't a couple. I mean, Stephen Harper in 2006 cut it to save uh, $10 million, um, which is, I guess, a couple of bucks.
1: Right. I mean, if Travis Vader ends up with a new trial, we'll be up into the millions of dollars spent on this case alone, no doubt. So, you know, um, I think this is is a really... I'm actually hoping that this case may end up being the kind of crystallizing moment where public opinion gets behind the idea where the public actually in a really concrete way can see why it's not a good idea to have unconstitutional laws on the books and hope that this may precipitate you know a, the type of not just you know i don't want to just see the liberal government institute the reforms that it wants to reform i would love to see an indep- independent um you know body of experts and and public servants tasked with really looking and finding ways to be more responsive to judicial decisions um, as they come. So, you know, I think that's hopefully some good that might come out of this, fingers crossed, is that a more seriously hard look will be made at finding ways to bring back the Law Reform Commission.
0: And so do you think that, you know, public opinion might uh, spur the government into action here because we had a camera in the courtroom?
1: So yeah, I mean, this is how we segue into the next part of our discussion. That was a pretty
0: smooth segue. It
1: was really smooth until you
0: totally telegraphed it by calling, by a calling segue. it out. So it's not smooth.
1: I mean, this is what a lot of people are saying. You know, my perspective on that very narrow question that you just asked is that this case would have been very quickly identified and flagged as having you know representing a colossal error. Uh, I would imagine that counsel in the room would have walked out of the courthouse and you know been scrummed by the media and would have said even the Crown would have been, would have had to acknowledge that it was unconstitutional. So I don't think this case would have in any way flown under the radar if it hadn't been televised. You know, I mean, I think, I don't know if Peter Sankoff would have seen it as quickly as he did, but others of his colleagues in Alberta surely would have, um, you know, it was a high profile enough case and people were watching and, you know, I don't think it had to be televised. But, you know, that's sort of an aside. Uh, that's, that doesn't answer the question, is it desirable to have cameras in the courtroom at all?
0: So is it? Desirable?
1: Well, I think, you know, one thing I want to acknowledge from the outset in this discussion is I think in our profession, there are certain fundamentals that are drilled into us so deeply that it's difficult for us to even contemplate a change. And this is one of them. It's a very, very longstanding rule that we don't have um, cameras in the courtrooms in this country. And I think a lot of times when we look at, you know, for example, making a murderer in cases like that where there's just media bonanza going on we kind of smugly look at that and say like well that's why we don't have cameras in the courtroom but ian hannah saying had i thought a really compelling piece um that he wrote um i think it was just this weekend and the way he framed it was that He said, you know, lawyers are not able to exercise their well-honed legal reasoning and and logic skills when it comes to answering this question, that he finds that a lot of the arguments that are mounted against cameras in the courtroom are more uh, gut reactions, they are not based in evidence, um, and among them are concerns about witnesses, you know, being intimidated by the presence of cameras, uh, lawyers grandstanding. So it's funny because most of the points that, that he made that lawyers tend to make that he doesn't find to be evidence-based are the types of preoccupations that I have that concern me about the the possibility of having cameras in the courtroom. So I would say my gut reaction is very much opposed. (laughs) Um, but I, you know, and I'm not surprised that someone from the media takes the opposing view. Um, but you know, I don't think this issue should be decided on a case-by-case basis, on the basis of applications by the media to a court in a given case. I think if we're going to go down this road, it should be very carefully considered. Law societies should be gathering that evidence, which I'm sure is out there. And Ian Hanamansing alludes to some of it being based in myth, that in fact the evidence demonstrates that it's not an issue. But I don't know how comprehensive of analysis has actually been done. And so I think, you know, it's something definitely worth looking at. With the kind of decline of the mainstream media and the significant reduction in resources for reporters at the courthouse, for example, you know, I do think that things can be missed now because you don't have as many journalists embedded watching, paying attention, um, accessing the courts on behalf of the citizenry and reporting on the goings on there. So, you know, I I think it's something that needs to be looked at seriously, for sure.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty conflicted on it, too. I I mean, we televise um, Supreme Court arguments and... um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good thing. That's been a very good thing. I don't think I've got a problem with televising, you know, a verdict or even televising potentially closing arguments in a case. Um, But when we get into the trial itself and and sort of the evidentiary stage of proceedings, I think there is a big problem. Um, I think that there is when you balance sort of the pros and cons. I mean, I think those cons are there. Um, there's going to have to be a lot of restrictions placed on what can and can't happen. And a lot of judicial resources would have to go in to monitoring compliance with those conditions. Like, no one is going to say that you should broadcast the evidence of a sexual assault complainant giving their evidence, or a child witness giving their evidence. But, you know, where do you draw the line? What about a concerned citizen, a good Samaritan, who has called in a tip about gang activity in his neighbourhood? Do you broadcast his name and his evidence? Um there's, I mean, so there's those issues. What about the jury? Yeah, I mean, I mean you're going to have to have all these rules about what you can and can't show, and someone's going to have to police that, and the justice system is strapped for cash. It's, I mean, it's just more resources that will be taken away and more time taken litigating these things. But then you have the other concerns, which I think are real concerns. Testifying is already a stressful and onerous and grueling process. I think the quality of evidence that, uh, that you may get And it's okay to speak, and I disagree with Ian Hannah Mansing. it's okay to speak in hypotheticals, and it's okay to be a bit speculative, because the downside is so dramatic. Because the downside, if we get this wrong, is tainted trials, bad evidence, wrongful convictions. And we don't need any of that.
1: This is where I would want to see what the evidence is, though, because, you know, on the one hand, you have just acknowledged that even when a courtroom is empty, like even when the only people in the room are the defense counsel, the prosecutor, the judge, the clerk, the court reporter, the witness, um, you know, and a couple other institutional people, it's, it, witnesses are already really, really nervous. So,
0: And now the witness knows that anyone can watch this at any time and everyone can be watching this. We also have to recognize that, especially in criminal trials, unlike inquiries and unlike a bunch of other uh, types of proceedings, witnesses have vested interests in the outcome of a proceeding. And, um, you know, we don't want to do anything that could potentially taint that evidence. So we have we have orders excluding witnesses. And right now, it's really easy to enforce those orders, because when you see the witness come into the courtroom, the prosecutor can say there's an order you have to leave. Are we going to allow witnesses to self-regulate? so that they can, you know, watch these proceedings before they testify. There's a real danger that evidence, you know, can be tainted here.
1: But, I mean, I think the media's response to that would be, in a high-profile case, they're reporting on what's going on in the courtroom anyway. So what difference does it make if it's in the newspaper versus, I mean, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but I think that's what a lot of the media people would say.
0: Yeah, and the response to that is that reading a, you know, 700-word 700 word newspaper article or reading a series of you know 140 character tweets is very different than having access to the complete evidentiary record
1: well and to play devil's advocate again I would say to you that arguably possibly more damage could be done by a curated um, presentation of the facts versus actually seeing the evidence because what you read that's reported in the media is very carefully selected not only to kind of most concisely summarize what happened but also to tell a better better story like and I don't say that with any disrespect to the media but you have to choose the facts that go in and you're going to tend to highlight the juicier parts of what went on and sometimes that can be at the expense of some of the evidence that went a little bit on the other side so
0: yeah but I mean facts and details are important and we're talking about tainting a witness it's it's like degrees matter And I think that that is a huge problem. There could be, again, there could be rules. Maybe you you can only broadcast cases after they're concluded. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the end of the day, I mean, I pity the poor, innocent, accused person who is acquitted and finds himself as a YouTube star.
1: Yeah, and Um, whose face is so recognized because day in and day out people are watching it. And, you know, just to come back to something that you just said before... In some ways, I find live tweeting more potentially damaging than actually live streaming a video because... I find when it comes to live tweeting even more of that condensing and curating takes place and you know I think the ship has sailed we're not going to be banning live tweeting from court but I would rather and I've said that I know I can't remember when but I know I've said this before on the podcast that I would rather wait till the end of the day and have a story that's actually well thought out and balanced and represents you know what happened overall than these kind of like snippy snips that come out and you know then maybe the person steps out of the courtroom for a little bit and
0: yeah yeah, I mean I think that that doesn't concern me as much from a tainting perspective um i mean it's obviously like you if you're a witness if you're a party you can read those tweets and that might taint your evidence but i think the tainting there is is not as egregious as it would be if you had access to to watching the whole proceeding if you were being able to you know have a you know have your laptop set up like you were in the courtroom itself i mean i think What the live tweeting does do is a disservice to public education. And this is, I mean, the real point that a lot of people make about broadcasting our trial proceedings, not just judgments, but the trial proceedings, is that we can educate the public, that we can show them what happens in the court. And I think that would be true, except only the most notorious, the most unusual, the most high-profile cases are going to be broadcast. And I wonder how much of an educate uh, uh, an education effect that's going to have on the public I mean we're not going to broadcast i don't think the media is going to broadcast the routine cases um, you know yeah. the the plea court the bail court like all of these Um, Other routine proceedings. And so I think that, you know, just broadcasting the Bernardos or just broadcasting the Picton trials or just broadcasting the Vader trial can lead to um, sort of a skewed perspective on the the part of the public about what happens in our court. So I don't know if it's actually that good for public education. And I'll just make one other anti-media point here. I don't think it's the justice system's job to subsidize the media. If You know, the media is having problems. I don't know if we should, as a justice system, say, look, there are these potential problems. They could result in tainted evidence. They could result in wrongful convictions. They could result in wrongful acquittals. They could result in stays of proceedings because evidence has been tainted. But, I mean, the media can't really afford to send someone to court, so let's give them hours of free programming so they can run ads and make money and, you know, use that. Because the media, I think it does educate the public but ultimately the media is there to make money as well and this is content for the media so of course they want it so i mean i think that it's difficult you have to balance it i totally agree with you that it shouldn't be done on a case-by-case basis I think there are some huge problems there. In Ontario, we have some legislation that would ban it completely. Um, so, I mean, there's lots of things that need to be changed. We don't want to have trials being broadcast in B.C., but not in Ontario. There needs to be some sort of national standard. There needs to be some, you know, some body that governs this and polices this. Um, it's a really messy issue. And I think.
1: And it's tricky because constitutionally, the administration of justice falls to the provinces. So, um, you know, it's it's the um, and if we were going to stick with a case-by-case basis, uh, good luck finding a judge who's now going to be in favor <laughs> of something like this, given you know what I think is pretty enormous embarrassment for the trial judge in the Vader case, and it would have been nonetheless, but it would have been much more confined, I think, to legal commentators and legal community people, and you know, in terms of you know now, whenever anyone wants to talk about it, they can go and play the tape of the judge reading the words, and I think. I would imagine this will have a chilling effect on uh, you know, other courts asked to, to allow this same type of thing in their courtrooms.
0: I do think, even though I'm not in favor at all, and lots of lawyers are, I mean i think a lot of those lawyers are in favor because they want to broadcast their cases and be able to you know post shots of themselves doing things so um i'm certainly not in vain enough to think that, that 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 would apply to me but i think some lawyers do think that but i do think we need to um increase access to our courtrooms and increase access to this sort of legal knowledge and there's lots of ways short of you know having a u.s style court tv making a murder style, broadcasting these things, that we can do that. For example, um, we can be much more accommodating to, uh, to journalists about access to exhibits, access to the courtroom, access to uh, things that are filed and considered by the judge. I know a lot of reporters have to, like, when there's a written decision given by a judge, that they have to jump through hoops um, to, get an ad, to get a copy of that decision. Right now, anyone can go to court, um, but not all decisions are necessarily in written form. Some are just delivered orally, and if you're not in court or you need to get a copy of what the judge actually said, it costs four fifty a page to have that transcript produced. That's so, I mean, a lot. It's ridiculous. its I mean, it's bad for an accused person who wants to appeal, right? Because it costs thousands and thousands of dollars just to even get the transcripts to launch your appeal. But if you're a reporter, that's a barrier as well. And it's a barrier to the member of the public. I think that what we should be doing before we look at spending millions and millions of dollars in setup and administration and policing costs and policy manuals um, and, and the mistakes that will be made. I mean, at the OJ trial, they actually broadcast solicitor-client conversations between OJ and his lawyers, things like this will happen and they will wreak havoc on our justice system. That's not speculative. It has happened. But what we can do is we can make sure that anyone who wants a transcript, they're produced free, they're posted on, you know, sites like Canley or other publicly accessible sites. So if you want to find out a decision, if you want to find out closing arguments, even perhaps that those can be available for free to the media, to public and to anyone who wants them.
1: And I think it'll be easier to go down that road at As the legal system, which you know, for those listening who are not in the legal system, it is still a little behind the times when it comes to technology. By and large, we use fax
0: machines.
1: (laughs) There's like fax machines are still a thing for lawyers, Um, and um, I do think that as we have more electronic filing of documents, electronic filing of submissions, I do think that more and more judges are typing out their decisions, whether they always hand them out. So I think you know the reliance, the over reliance on transcripts will also become less of a thing because you know it'll be possible to get written I mean it's true that you know when a lawyer makes closing submissions it's not a given that what's in their notes is exactly what they say in court but um, no and I mean
0: like lawyers should be able to have to disclose that but anything you say there's a recording made and I can get access to that recording within like 48 hours or something but the media necessarily can't and you can't broadcast it and I think that those rules we should look at those rules before we sort of open up this issue of cameras in the courtroom because the last thing that anyone wants is a good show at the expense of, you know, someone's liberty at the expense of the proper administration of justice.
1: And we need to get you know, our houses in order, our courthouses in order. Our justice system has enough other problems, without you know, if if it were to be that okay, we're going to launch a you know an inquiry into whether we should be doing this. I mean, that's going to be taking away you know all the head crown attorneys and all kinds of practitioners are going to be put on committees to start looking at this. You know, maybe it's something the law society wants to look at, but. Um, you know, I would be reticent to say that this is the time the justice system is looking at how to reduce delays, how to be more administratively efficient. and I think this how would to be treat as-
0: victims of sexual assault better, yeah. how to do all of these things, And I think you're right. There's a huge opportunity cost that is discounted by people who are zealous advocates of having cameras in the courtroom.
1: yeah, so I would say, you know, I leave you with I do have an open mind, I'm open to be persuaded. I would put it to you, Ian Hanneman, saying that if you show me the evidence, I'm prepared to consider it. I don't think, you know, the evidence that's alluded to in his piece is basically his experience covering a couple of inquiries. I mean, I would want to see robust data and analysis, and I, you know, I'm open to persuasion. But um, you know, at this point, I think you know our position is pretty clear.
0: Yeah, if you're the if you're advocating change, I, I think that you're the one that should come with some evidence. Um, but I, I do like. Ian Hanmanson's piece. I mean, he's a lawyer, he's a journalist. I think it's well thought out and I think it's something that should be discussed.
1: Well, it really made me rethink things because I have said, you and I were talking about the cameras in the courtroom um, just privately right before the verdict, um, you know, the day before or something. And I remember saying to you, I do think our profession is particularly... I'll use a small C, like conservative, about any kind of change to our most fundamental principles. Um, even when it comes to you know, looking at reforms for sex assault trials, I think people are very, very uncomfortable with anything that would tinker with the way a trial is done. And so I thought, you know, when Ian sort of nailed it on the head, when he said lawyers sort of lose their... Um, ingrained legal reasoning type skills when it comes to issues like this because we just have such a strong um, almost visceral reaction against anything that would be different than it is right now so I'm prepared to accept that um, as being true Uh, and I think you got that bang on and and you know it remains to be seen whether the profession as a whole can be brought on side you know to a change like this
0: we hate change so much we won't even take unconstitutional sections of the criminal code out
1: we hate change so much that the gowns that we wear in court have a vestigial coin sack on the back of them, you know, from the days when barristers were were paid. It was so unseemly to take money for for your services that barristers were paid with you know a toss of a coin into a, a sack on the back of a gown, and it's it's still basically there.
0: That's how I still do it.
1: <laughs> you just get paid in coins. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, criminal
0: defense lawyer. Pretty much only coins and bounce checks.
1: And bounce checks. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's pretty much what we wanted to talk about today. So love to hear any feedback that any of our listeners have on this and anything else we've discussed on the podcast.
0: Yeah, we've got some good feedback about your voice. You've corrected the vocal fry.
1: Apparently it's kind of nice to listen to now. Thank you, friends.
0: Although someone did write in and say that uh, I had a bad voice for radio.
1: I I think you extrapolated that from the comment. I don't think anyone said you had a bad voice for radio. I think they just said they liked listening to me more, which I appreciate. Um, And I will say, you know... My newfound experience as a law professor has, has definitely made clear to me that we will not be rec- recording podcasts on days when I teach my two back-to-back classes because my voice is destroyed by the end of the day. But hopefully my muscles will get stronger and I'll get better at talking more and longer and louder.
0: You need to get better at talking more and louder and longer. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more uh, at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tammin, and you can follow me on Twitter at mspratt. Thanks for listening.
3: Prove it, oh, oh, you got nothing legit, oh